Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I am the resurrection and I am the life. I'm not. <laughs> I am still very much Kev. <laughs> it's the latest stop on our musical cities tour. I'm really excited by this clash. Yeah, I thought you would be. So just a reminder, the series of clashes we're doing in the moment is famous musical cities. This time we go in Detroit. Sort of. <laughs> we're going Motown. <laughs> And we're doing, so today we're doing Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, and next week, Kev, what are we doing? We're doing Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions. And uh, yeah, these are two albums that I know uh, you're quite fond of. Um, Yeah, I'm a bit of a fan of them. (laughs) So I'm going to say this now, and I've said this before, but I'm saying it now. As people may know, we record both albums back to back in the same same session. As we sit here right now, I still don't know what I'm going to score either of these two. I have a rough idea, but that I always start with a rough idea and then it changes as we go through it. This is going to be tough. It is. So, as we said, the obvious connection, Motown and uh, the city is Detroit. There's a couple of other things that connect these two albums. So they both, uh, they're both albums which, which heavily feature a lot of social commentary uh, about what was going on in the States at the time. They are both albums in which their artists took a lot more creative control. In fact, Stevie was inspired by what Marvin did on What's Going On. Essentially, you can argue that What's Going On begat Innovisions. Without the success of it, there's no way Innovisions happens. 100%. There are a couple of other things. So uh, this is something I learned from researching this. So so, uh, Marvin Gaye played as a session musician on a lot of other Motown recordings. He played as a drummer. He even played on, as he was known then, Little Stevie Wonder, a lot of his early material. Yeah, a a lot of the um, Motown coterie of artists sort of dipped in and out of um, working with... So Smokey Robinson is basically responsible for a huge ton of output in the 60s, and then as it becomes a lot more sort of socially minded, it has a different sound and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the last thing that connects these two albums, well, it's sort of back to the Motown connection, and that's basically that... um, Barry Gordy was a bit of a shit. Well, he certainly didn't really want either album to come out as as they were. No, nor to give the artists the creative control that they wanted. However, Stevie very much uh, wrestled that back, but we will get into that when we talk next week. Yeah, we will, we will. But before that, should we do some Can't Get You Out of My Head? I think we should. Okay, can I go first, please? Yeah, sure. Okay, with my shite... Well, you've said before that things get stuck in your head when you hear them in commercials, and you've mm-hmm. found some good things from doing that. This one's not something that's good. The commercial for a hotel holiday booking company in the UK currently has the 1996 hit I Love You Always Forever by Donna Lewis as the music. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> I've not seen that advert, so I'm really glad that I haven't. So it sounded dated back in 96 when it first came out. 
And I was happy for it to have been consigned to the one-hit wonder bin of history. And say, until this advert came out, and uh, yeah, it's been buzzing around my head for a few days, irritatingly. Well, I mean, the only thing I can say positively for it is that she might get some royalties <laughs> from, yeah. from the using it for the, for the advert. So good luck to you. <laughs> play but it's still a shit song yeah <laughs> <laughs> what about you any shite i have no shite this week absolutely not fair enough okay well is there anything good you want to give a tip of the hat to then i do have something i want to give a tip of the hat to so um it's a song by a dutch indie band from amsterdam who are called pip blom sound and the track is called you don't want this it's a lovely piece of jangly indie it's really good. It's taken from their upcoming new album, Welcome Break, which has nothing to do with the service station of... <laughs> the Linton Travel Tavern. At least I don't believe it is. No, certainly nothing to do with the Linton Travel Tavern. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, it's, re- it's really good. Um, I think it's on the Six Music um, A-list at the minute, so you probably will hear it at some point. Cool. So uh, I shall check that out. Thank you. Um, I'm going to cheat. I've got two. Sorry, I know we don't. We try not to do this, but there's two I want to call out. One, so because we're doing very much a soul clash over the next couple of weeks, something I heard yesterday on Six Music as it happens, which I had never heard before, Solomon Burke's cover of Sam and Dave's Hold On, I'm Coming. It's Fun K. Oh, oh. I mean, Solomon Burke, so, you know, like, the, the man performed on a throne. So, you know, yeah, that that's going to be all kinds of good. Kev, it's right up your street, mate. It's great. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that's just a quick one. Uh, the new one that I want to give a tip of the hat to, well, it, it was released back in July of this year, so, so not brand new, but still pretty new. It's a song called Queen of the Underground by Swedish uh, rock group Goat. So you talk, it's retro, psychedelic, prog rock. Think Jefferson Airplane, think Zeppelin, think Edgar Winter, think Aphrodite's Child, think Focus. It's all kinds of good. That sounds great. (laughs) And there's something about a Swedish psychedelic band that Mm -hmm. just appeals to me. Yeah, it's got an absolute face melter of a guitar solo in it too. So um, Lovely stuff. Six minutes of bliss. <laughs> so yeah, that's Can't Get You Out of My Head. I'm going to add them to the YouTube playlist. Kev, how are we getting on with Spotify? It, it's moved up It's moved up the um, to-do list. <laughs> okay. Uh, one day, maybe. One day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> Top Trump's time, I think. I believe it is. So, I've won the last three. So it's me to go first. I think this is going to be a really close one, though. I suspect it will be. Possibly we might end up in a draw. All right, well, I've broken my tradition for the last few weeks, but I I won't now. So let's do sales first. What's going on? Uh, I couldn't get exact sales figures, but over 4 million copies. 7.1 million. Fucking hell, wow. Now that is a surprise. Yeah, I I am surprised that it's so comfortably outperformed. Um, what's going on? Definitely. All right, well, you pick. Okay, I'm going awards. Mm-hmm. Three Grammys, including Album of the Year, and was also inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 1999. Ah, shite. Okay, so so what's going on was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 98, but all I can do is two Grammy nominations in 72, so you've absolutely kicked my ass on that one. That's, I mean, criminal, really. Yes, it is. I'd like to see what won in that year, but who knows? Okay, I'm going charts. All right. Okay, UK. Yep. 
number four. Okay. Uh, UK, number 56. We've talked about the, the records buying public before. 56? Unbelievable. Go on. US number eight. Oh, US number six. Okay. It's a draw. Yeah, but I want to talk about that number 56 again and like... <laughs> Fucking hell, with British public doing in 1972, 71. I suppose it's glam, like all the starts yeah. of that. So, okay. But still, 56, sort yourselves out. Have a word. Okay. So that's a draw. Uh, it's still your pick, though. So, rankings, mm-hmm. which I think you're going to probably win on. Yeah, me too. <laughs> go on. <laughs> okay, so we'll go off the Rolling Stone Top 500. Yep. 2003, number 23. 2003, number 6. 2012, number 24. Number six again. 2020, number 34. Number one. Yeah, you quite you quite comfortably won that. Yeah, I mean, retrospectively, 50 years on, what's going on is now seen as one of the most influential uh, and greatest albums ever recorded. I think it also speaks to the inner visions. It's essentially in the shadow of Songs of the Key of Life. Fair. Well, a, a fair observation, whether that is... Yeah. Fair or not, we'll get on to. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a whole that's a whole different thing. But certainly, in terms of the popular conception, is that yeah. that's that's considered Stevie's opus, I suppose. Yes, yeah, indeed. Okay, so what we are? It's two one to Inner Visions uh, with one draw. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that makes sense. There's, yeah, there's two left. Um, okay, I'm going to go certifications here. Okay. In America, what's going on? Certified gold. So I don't have an American certification. I only have the UK. Which is? Gold. Oh, what's going on platinum in the UK? That's Which is a bit mad given the sales figures we've just talked about, but... Yeah. Okay, fine. All right, okay. So, on a technicality, I appear to have won that one. Yeah. I think we're going to end with a draw, really, because we're, we're left yeah. with critic scores. And based on what we've already said about um, the rankings... It's unlikely that that you're going to have low ones. I'm going to put it that way. Okay, well, let's go, critics. So it's 2 2, and this is the last one. So it's all down to critic scores. But yeah, I mean, well, you're obviously confident in your scores. So mm-hmm. uh, all music, five out of five. Ditto. Okay. Rolling Stone, also five out of five. Ditto. Pitchfork, nine and a half out of ten. I don't have a pitchfork score. <sighs> Well, it's unfair to penalise you for not having a, a review in Pitchfork. Although, what is wrong with you, Pitchfork? Review Innovisions, please. Yes, because it is a fairly important album. <laughs> Quite. Okay, I'm happy to call that a draw. Yeah, I think it is. Dead Heat. Which goes back to what I said uh, a few minutes ago. I think this one is going to be tough to call. It's going to be tight. It is indeed. So I still lead 4-3, which is, um, which is good news. But uh, yeah. I'm ready to start going through what's going on. Yep, let's do it. Right, okay. So what's going on? It was Marvin Gaye's 11th studio album. It was released on the 21st of May 1971 on the Motown subsidiary Tamla, or just Tamla Motown in the UK. Mm-hmm. Recorded between June 1970 and May 1971. The sessions were at several studios, including at the Hitsville USA, which was Motown's main studio in Detroit. Golden World Studios and United Sound Studios, both of those also in Detroit, but also some of the mixing was performed at the Sound Factory in Hollywood, California. 
The album was produced by Marvin Gaye. It was the first Motown release to credit the artists themselves solely with the production of the album, which is, a, again, something that influenced what we'll talk about next week. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, it is also the first of Marvin Gaye's albums to actually credit the Motown in-house band, the Funk Brothers, because, again... As I said earlier, Barry Gordy, bit of a shit, not liking to credit the musicians that actually worked on most of his stuff. And the Funk Brothers were a fucking phenomenal band. Incredible. I mean, just that, like, I'm sh- I'm pretty sure there's a documentary knocking about about the Funk Brothers, and I say I do not recall the name of it, but if you can find it, it's well worth a watch. I'd, I have watched it a few years ago, and it okay. it's brilliant. Excellent. I'll be looking for that then. Right, so the album, it's a concept album in the form of what's called a song cycle. So each song flows into the next. And the theme is that it's told from the perspective of a Vietnam War veteran or someone who's returned from the Vietnam War to find that the country he's been fighting for is being ripped apart by suffering, hatred, violence, inequality. The inspiration for that theme was mainly Marvin Gaye's brother, Frankie. He had actually served in Vietnam and when he returned, basically Marvin realised that his outlook on life had, had changed because of what he'd witnessed uh, when he was over there serving. Yeah, and I mean, that concept runs right through this album and it covers the big topics, you know, mm-hmm. drug abuse, poverty, the treatment of Vietnam veterans as they returned, even like something as forward thinking as ecological damage. Like, yeah. you know, it's there's nothing prior to this that like an entire album covers so many huge topics. And if you think of the context as well of when this album's come out, you've had the Watts riots in 64, which I know had a huge impact on on Marvin Gaye. You have the Detroit riots. You've had, you know, Kent State. You've had Martin Luther King assassinated. You've had Malcolm X assassinated. You have Bobby Kennedy assassinated. Yeah. There's so much going on. Vietnam's still burning. Yeah. Nixon's in the white. You know, there's there's a fuck ton of stuff going on at this time. There really is. So you mentioned the Detroit riots, and I said right at the start when this is Detroit, kind of, because of the Detroit riots in what, 68? Yeah, 68. Where the headquarters of Motown got, did it get burnt down? Or certainly got it certainly got heavily damaged in, in the mm-hmm. riots. Barry Gordy moved Motown to LA. So by the time this album came out, and obviously therefore in Divisions, Motown was no longer based in Detroit, they were based in LA. But you know, you can't say, oh, it's LA this week because we're doing Motown, because no. No, that's just confusing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you're absolutely right. This is one of the first albums outside perhaps of, of folk that was had social commentary at its heart as its main theme and as we'll come on to to do that on a what is essentially a pop album is incredibly brave of Marvin Gaye well and particularly and Marvin Gaye had he'd been known for romance songs you know obviously performing with Tammy Terrell you know all that kind of thing so for him to to take such a left left field turn in yeah. his career it's it's such a brave choice it is indeed a brave choice but i'm going to come to all that i'd like as we often do because you know we love the sound of our own voices <laughs> to tell the background of this album you really you do have to go back to the beginning really and i'm going to give a very brief history of marvin gaye's career up to the recording of what's going on if i may yeah go ahead 
Right, so, okay. He left school at 16, 17 and, and had joined the Air Force. He was discharged in 1958 because he didn't like following orders. I mean, don't join the Air Force then, Marv, do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, having been discharged from the Air Force, he formed the doo-wop group, the Marquis. They were taken under the wing of the legendary blues singer Bo Diddley. They recorded one single, it was called Wire Earp. It didn't chart, and so they were, they were dropped from their, their label. So Marvin realised that what was happening was happening in Detroit. So in 1960, he relocated from Washington, D.C. to Detroit. And Christmas of that year, he got a gig performing at the home of Barry Gordy, the co-founder of Motown Records. Barry Gordy was really impressed with what he heard, and he brought Marvin Gaye out of his existing record contract and signed him on a contract to Tamla. His first releases on Motown, on Tamla, were not R&B soul records. They were much more jazz crooner, Nat King Cole-style songs. Yeah, and you can see the lineage from that jazz backgrounds mm. going through going through this album. You know, like, he got forced down a route because Motown was just producing the hits. Indeed, indeed. So, as we said, he also worked as a session musician. Uh, we talked about he worked with, with Stevie. He also co-wrote and played drums on Dancing in the Street, um, which I'm going to say now is legit one of the best songs of all time. I fucking love that song by Martha and the Vandellas. It's an absolute belter. And, I mean... Martha Martha Reeves was the secretary at Motown as well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like fucking hell, is it the secretary can can release an absolute banger? Yeah, well, more than one because nowhere to run to fucking tune as well. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, as you just said, Motown was a hit factory, and Barry Gordy wanted to turn Marvin into a hit maker. So. Marvin's, you know, records very soon became much poppier. So in 65, he got his first top 10 hit in the US with How Sweet It Is, To Be Loved By You, got to number six. He he released several duets, including It Takes Two with Kim Weston. But as you mentioned, it wasn't until he started working with Tammy Terrell that he really hit it off with with a partner, so to speak. So songs like you're all i need to get by ain't no mountain high enough are all-time classics of the of the motown label of the soul genre because they're really good (laughs) (laughs) his first number one came in 1968 with heard it through the grapevine uh fun fact berry gordy didn't think it had any commercial appeal so didn't want to release it (laughs) (laughs) Um, i mean can we just just before like you you move on so i'm not sure whether the listener I presume you they will certainly know know about Motown, but they had like a quality committee. Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, so like the a song would be recorded and it'd go to this committee and it had to be approved to get released. Like and there's like various people sat around going, nah, it's not good enough that. Go back and try again. And like nothing got released without the say so or approval of the committee. That's fucking mad. I mean, you can understand how they managed to create so many bangers, but... Yeah, that well, it comes back to the creative control, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and freedom. Did that committee feature Anna Gordy, by any chance? Um, I believe it did. Yeah, okay, so so Anna Gordy, Berry's sister. One thing I missed out, in 63, she and Marvin Gaye married. Uh, And Marvin was feeling, as I mentioned earlier, quite constrained by what he was and wasn't allowed to record and quite disillusioned with 
with life that label at Motown. So he basically said that he felt like a puppet, Berry's puppet and Anna's puppet. So actually, I should say, a lot of these uh, facts I'm reading are from a 2021 article on smoothradio.com. Wow. Not just good for soothing your dog, too. (laughs) Nice callback. (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah, as we said, it's the 50th anniversary of the release of What's Going On this year. And so there's been there's loads of 50 years since What's Going On articles. One of the best in terms of quotes and stuff is from Smooth Radio. So cheers. <laughs> so, yeah, you'd mentioned about the water riots and other things that were going on. And Marvin increasingly felt he needed to turn his attention to that in, in his songs. So, according to the article, he's quoted as having said, with the world exploding around me, how am I supposed to keep singing love songs? Which is a fair point. Yeah, you can't really argue with that. No. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he uh, elaborated on that. He said, in 1969 and 1970, I began to reevaluate my whole concept of what I wanted my music to say. I was very much affected by letters my brother was sending me from Vietnam, as well as the social situation here at home. I realised I had to put my own fantasies behind me if I wanted to write songs which would reach the souls of people. I wanted them to take a look at what was happening in the world. So that very much explains what he was trying to achieve with what's going on. And I suppose, like, as you've alluded, well, you've not alluded to, you've been very clear about his professional life wasn't going well. His personal life was uh, like an absolute bin fire. So the marriage to Anna Gordy started to break down. He becomes addicted to coke. He has some troubles, shall we say, with the IRS. More on which later. <laughs> and mo- like he starts to fall into the depression. And like the the absolute catalyst of this is then the death of Tammy Terrell. And he yeah he he absolutely goes under. Absolutely. So she Tammy Terrell died in 1970 from a brain tumor. She'd actually been diagnosed after collapsing whilst performing on stage with Marvin at a concert in Virginia. Uh, and as you said, her death really sent him into a tailspin personally. He he refused to perform on stage. He refused to, to re-enter the studio. His marriage was breaking down. He was uh, under the influence not just of cocaine, but heroin as well as we'll definitely get talk about when we start going through the tracks. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he, he wasn't in a good place. Uh, and it, I've jokingly mocked Berry Gordy a few times, but it was Berry Gordy that managed to persuade Marvin to get back into the studio. Now, there would have been a, a self-interest in that, obviously, but also out of concern for Marvin's well-being. It's to get him out of the, the rut he was in, if you like. Well, the depression that he sinks into gets to the point that he attempts suicide and is he's prevented um, from doing so by Barry Gordy's father, who comes in and, and stops it. This is a detail Smooth Radio omitted, so I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh about that, Kevin. It's not funny. No, it's, it's more that they smoothed over it. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) And that's why that's staying in. (laughs) Wow, and I didn't know that. I genuinely didn't know that. But um, yeah, that that speaks volumes to where he was personally, doesn't it? Yeah, because obviously you you talked about that he refused to perform. I think Motown sort of cobbled together an album of stuff that he'd recorded and released it. He refuses to promote it. He won't do anything Mm -hmm. um, at this time. No, absolutely. Uh, And the condition on which he agrees to get back in the studio and record a new album is that Berry Gordy allows him full creative control. 
So in June of 1970, Marvin Gaye and the Funk Brothers entered Hitsville, USA to start work on what's going on. And I I suppose what you've also got to say is that he also takes control of his image. So if you see any footage of Marvin Gaye in the 60s, sharp suit, cleanly shaven, like a very sort of regimented haircut. It was very much of, of that genre. like Much like Stevie. Yeah, very much so. Like that was the kind of image that they, they were going for. But as a, he grows a massive beard and that is actually quite the reclamation of his image because he's moving away from this love song merchant into someone who's a bit more serious. A, a very good point, and you have allowed me to segue beautifully into the artwork for the album. It's a cracking photo. <laughs> well, not just the one on the front, but the one on the back as well. Yeah. So it was photographed by James Hendon. Uh, the art direction was by Curtis McNair, according to the liner notes for the album. <laughs> it is, out on the front, a close-up image of Markin. Of Markin? <laughs> Merkin. Merkin gay. <laughs> Do you want another run at that? No, no, that's the second mispronunciation in two weeks that's staying in the show. <laughs> A close-up image of Marvin Gaye uh, standing in the rain, the rain glistening on his beard, on his fro, wearing a, a sleek black leather jacket, looking... He looks great. He does look great, doesn't he? It's cool as fuck. Yeah. And then, impossibly, the image that adorns the rear sleeve is even cooler. So <laughs> it, it's it's a much more zoomed out photograph. He's standing in a kid's playground, as we see. But not only has he got that massive leather trench coat on, like Morpheus before Morpheus was even in a concept, <laughs> he's got like a bright mustard yellow shirt and tie on looking fucking awesome he just looks fabulous i am very jealous of how he looks well as i said has anyone ever looked cooler on an album cover possibly al green on the cover of his greatest hits album where he's topless but he's uh doing the gun salute to the camera yeah yeah okay perhaps perhaps but anyway (laughs) marvin oozing suaveness yes (laughs) And, and uh well would you like to comment on the font it is a nice font. It's a traditional font. It is a wall. I always said it's it's almost Indian in its use of the serif. <laughs> I mean, we're go we're going deep font chat here. Listen, Kev, you were literally on Wikipedia last time out <laughs> reading the stuff on the font. So we're going deep on font now. Okay, we're going big. So that's what people listen to this for. It's just <laughs> the font chat. It is a good font though. Just one more thing, just before we move on from the artwork, I just want to give a shout out to Marvin's liner notes, in which he says, After some several days of reflecting and pondering, general thought, which is very unusual for me, I still can't think of anything non-complimentary to say about myself. Brilliant. Sonia, <laughs> you're Marvin Gaye, so you're allowed to say that. Well, quite right. But that's it on artwork, unless there's anything more you want to say? No, he looks cool as fuck. Okay, Kev, how and when did you discover what's going on? So we've we've talked about my sort of love of soul music. And I came to so I came into soul stuff through Stevie Wonder. Um and we'll I'll talk obviously a lot about that next week. And through sort of listening to Stevie, it then immediately sort of moved on to Marvin Gaye and James Brown. So from about sort of the age of 18, 19, I've known what's going on. As, and it's been a core album that I always return to. It's, it's always an album that I've enjoyed listening to. Fair enough. 
Uh, much, much later for me, as as you well know. So I didn't really discover soul music until around about 2014. Uh, and that was because I finally relented to what you'd been telling me for 15 years. Um, so I was familiar with a couple of songs from this album, as we'll go on to, the title track in particular, obviously. As I recall, this wasn't one that I specifically listened to on your recommendation, but it's definitely one I discovered after you'd made some recommendations to me. So yeah, we're talking in the last six or seven years, really. But yeah, it's another one where having listened to it for the first time, I was like, yeah, fucking hell, why wasn't I listening to this years ago? This is not bad at all. Yeah, I mean, for you, it was soul music. For me, it was much more around the um, the dance stuff that you introduced me to, which I'm sure when we do some some albums there... Um... Kev, we've got to do an electronica season. I've got to yeah, take yeah. you through the history of electronica. I mean, I say that. We'll just, if I do, we'll just spend fucking ages talking about German electronica <laughs> from the 70s. <laughs> but that's fine by me. <laughs> Absolutely bang into the craft work. And Tangerine Dream, mate. And Noi. There's loads. <laughs> Moog synthesizers everywhere. Oh, defo. Well, we'll be talking about that next week as well. We will indeed. Uh, right, okay. I'm ready to start going through the songs. Yeah, let's do it. All right, okay. So the first song is the title track, What's Going On? It was the first single from the album, uh, released on the 20th of January 1971. It reached number two in the US. Uh, it sold over two million copies. We've already criticised the record buying public in the UK once on today's show. Have a guess, Kev. Where did it get to in the UK? I'm good. 15. Lower. 20. Lower. What? 80. Why well, didn't even make top 40? 80. 8 0. Ridiculous. A nation that bought Grandad by Clive Dunn. Fucking Bellends. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so the song, mainly written by Al Cleveland and Obi Benson from The Four Tops. The idea initially came from Obi Benson himself. He started working on it back in May of 69, and the inspiration came from the Four Tops were touring California. Their tour bus arrived in Berkeley near San Francisco. On that day, there was an anti-war protest in Berkeley. Benson and his bandmates witnessed police attacking protesters quite naturally. Obi Benson was somewhat upset by what he saw. And he started asking himself questions like, what is happening here? Why are they sending kids so far away from their families overseas? Why are they attacking their own children in the streets? All perfectly legitimate questions, mm-hmm. given what was going on at the time. So he started working with his friend and, and one of Motown's chief songwriters, Al Cleveland. Together they came up with the initial idea for what's going on. Obi Benson initially wanted his own band, the Four Tops, to, to record it, but his bandmates weren't keen. So he was quoted, again, smoothradio.com, he was quoted as saying, my partners told me it was a protest song. I said, no, man, it's a love song about love and understanding. I'm not protesting. I just want to know what's going on. After the Four Tops rejected the song, it was then proposed to Marvin Gaye, who, as you mentioned earlier, having been inspired by things like the Watts riots in California in, in 65, decided, yeah, I don't want to take it on. Marvin changed the melody, added some of his own lyrics... And that became the song that opens up this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, one last quote from Obi Benson. Marvin added some things that were more ghetto, more natural. 
which made it seem more like a story than a song. We measured him for the suit, and he tailored the hell out of it. Wow, that that's brilliant. Yeah, it is. So initially, Marvin actually wanted the song to go to the originals, but it was Obi that said, now, nah, mate, you do it. It's your song now. Mm-hmm. You, you record it. And uh, he was right. Yeah, and obviously we will rhapsodise about this song. One of the things that I love, I love about this, so Eli Fontaine plays the sax on this, mm-hmm. and he was just pissing about in the studio, just as musicians do, and starts playing something. And Marvin Gaye hears it and he's like, that's great. Right, we're having that. And he's like, what? Like, I'm just I'm goofing around. I'm just messing about. He's like, no, 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 that's going in. We're having that. And the famous sax bit in yeah. the song is that, is just from Eli Fontaine fucking about. Brilliant. There's a couple of other things I want to talk about, about the recording of the song. The bass line, a fantastic bass line, played by James Jameson. Apparently he'd knackered his back. And so he couldn't sit in a chair or stand up to play the bass. So he was lying on the floor. Ah. He was <laughs> having to lie on the floor and play the bass. And it's a fucking great bass line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the sort of double lead vocal that you hear in it was a happy accident. I don't know if you knew that. I, I, well, I was aware that it was, it was down to a recording mistake. Yeah, so basically Marvin had done a number of takes. And he'd picked the two that he thought were the best. And he'd asked... He'd asked the engineer, Ken Sands, to basically give him those two takes so he could compare and pick which one he felt was best. Ken Sands accidentally mixed them together, took it to Marvin and said, uh, soz. And Marvin's like, that's fucking great. <laughs> Let's go with that, shall we? I mean, that's that's the beauty of, of how this song comes together is there's loads of great sort of happenstance or happy accidents that create gold you know it's yeah it's alchemy that's going on here it's phenomenal so we've talked about the bass line we've talked about the sax the drum part which is simple but the fact that he's got so much reverb on that percussion and on the bongos mm. just glorious the strings are meltingly beautiful and not too heavy in the mix either like just no exactly they're there but you they're not overpowering as sometimes it or cloying as sometimes strings can be no because what takes center stage and what really shines through is is, is Marvin Gaye's caramel smooth voice it's just a phenomenal vocal performance yes it is like from the first beat that he comes in it's one of the greatest vocal performances put to record. Yes, agreed. And the, I think the dueling vocals enhances that sense of mm-hmm. storytelling. Yeah, and and all the, you know, the the what's happening, brother, like at the start and everything, it, it, it puts you in a place right from the beginning. It does seem like a conversation then when you have yeah, the dueling vocals later on. Definitely. There is one person who disagree with us, though. Do you know who that was? I bet it was Nobby McGee. No, no, it was Barry Gordy. (laughs) Apparently he told Marvin Gaye that it was the worst thing I have ever heard in my life. And he refused to release it as a single. So Marvin went on strike until he did. (laughs) Refusing to get back in the studio and record any more songs. And then, because it's so successful as a single, Barry Gordy goes, fuck, people want this kind of thing, right? get in the studio, and they absolutely bang it out. So the article I read says, subsequent to the release of the song, 
10 business days they record the rest of the album in. <laughs> Couple of weeks. <laughs> like, and they even have the weekend yeah, off. they have the weekend off. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Phenomenal. And can can I just say, I know we we talk about album length and everything like this. Everything it covers, the musical styles, the, the contents, everything that's going on is done in less than 36 minutes. Nine tracks, 35 and a bit minutes, boom. Yeah. <sighs> Phenomenal. So what you've just said, that makes sense then in terms of, so I mentioned song cycle and every song flowing into the other. This as anyone that's listened to the album in preparation for today will know, doesn't flow into the second track. It ends on a fade-out, and that makes sense, uh, given what you've just said about the, the sessions. Now, well, an interesting an interesting coincidence. This has both been sampled 85 times and covered 85 times. Oh, no. <laughs> <three>. Oh, no. <laughs> it's only three on a readout. Cindy Lauper. Okay. Um, that's where you're starting. Like, Christ knows where we're going. You too. I'm not surprised. <laughs> no, but I've I've no interest in listening to it. No. And coming right out of left field, Paul Hardcastle of No 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 Nineteen fame. Okay. <laughs> I did not expect Paul Hardcastle to come. <laughs> I mean, Vietnam War. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's a link there. He's got a theme. <laughs> Did he also do the soundtrack for the Ken Burns like documentary? <laughs> the man, if that's the case, then the man like needs a hobby. Stop going on about Vietnam, lad. <laughs> Should we move on? <laughs> yeah, I've undercut the serious nature of the song by having a pop at Paul Hardcastle. Yeah, but I mean, well, the thing is, I started it by mentioning that he'd done a cover of it. I mean, <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's, every fucker's covered this song, and um... they really shouldn't. No. So it's one of those songs. Just leave it alone. Yeah. You don't need to do your put attempt to put your stamp on it because it will always pale in, into insignificance. And, and as as for you two, like listen, we've slagged you two off so much on this show. We, and rightly. Uh, yeah, and rightly. But we have to say we both love you two up to a point, up to a, a certain point in time. Because they did some great stuff. And we will be covering you two at some point on, yeah. on Album Clash. But I have no desire whatsoever to hear Bono sing Marvin Gaye. Just don't do it. Go away. In my, in my mind, it will be insufferable. Uh, yeah, exactly. Should we stop talking about you too? Yeah, let's... Fucking Bono. <laughs> Making poverty history for him. We've done that before. I know. We've done that. But I don't before. care. Like, I'm going to keep going on about it. Pay your fucking tax, you prick. <laughs> Use some of that Blackberry money. Or some of that iPod money. Or the money that, like, <laughs> Apple probably gave you to force feed your album onto the entire fucking world. As I said, launched the world's first distributed and coordinated malware attack. <laughs> <laughs> I want to stop talking about you two and talk about what's happening, brother. Okay, let's move on. Uh, okay, so what's happening, brother? Directly inspired by, mm-hmm. as we mentioned earlier, what had been happening to his brother. And importantly, the experiences that his brother had had when he returned from Vietnam. I'm just going to go through some of the lyrics. Can't find no work. Can't find no job, my friend. Money's tighter than it's ever been. Same man, I just don't understand. What's going on across this land? Uh, what's happening, brother? I mean, it's, it speaks so well to the disillusionment 
of Vietnam vets returning to the country and their dislocation from not just the politics, but also the pop culture of the time as well. Yeah. The, they'd essentially been on Mars for however long they were in Vietnam and coming back to a country that they just have no idea what, what the fuck it's about. Well, exactly that. And a country that wasn't interested in hearing what they'd been through. A country that was ashamed of what they'd been sent over there to do. And the fact that they'd not succeeded in that mission. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a dual, a dual thing, isn't it? The, mm. To a portion of, of the populace that they are stooges for a wrong-headed policy mm-hmm. and in a poor country on the other side of the world. And for the... For another portion of the population, they're losers. They're the first people to lose an American war. Yeah, quite so. So yeah, it's a really powerful one, this, in terms of the lyrics. In terms of the sound, it's quite similar to... And this is something we're going to come back to. Well, I'm going to... It's a concept album. So the sound is naturally and deliberately similar throughout the tracks. And in that respect, works as a concept album. We talked about this when we went through Pet Sounds versus Sgt. Peppers. This is much more, I think, in the in the Pet Sounds camp, that it, there is a consistency both thematically and sonically. And you hear that on this. Again, the bass and the strings are the, the heart and soul, to me, of, of the song, but still don't overpower, still don't dominate, still allow the voice the vocals, the message to come through. The backing vocals as well, just beautiful. And it's brilliantly put together. Like the work the work in the studio here, like of putting all these disparate elements together. Again, just, I mean, all. Definitely. So you you mentioned Al Green when we, were, when we were going through the artwork and you talked about the backing vocals then. I mean, Al Green was listening to this album, wasn't he? Yeah. I mean, everyone, there's, list, there's, everyone listened well, yeah. to this album and was influenced by it. A hundred percent. And, and these, Al Green's not the only not, not the only artist that I'm gonna I'm gonna call forward to as we go through this. And I don't mean that as a criticism in any way of anyone. It just shows how influential this mm-hmm. this album became. But yes, the, to me, there's a definite Al Green vibe on what's happening, brother. Yeah, definitely. Um, really, really good. It, yeah, just absolutely brilliant. Indeed. Flying high in the friendly sky. So, I would just like to quote uh, the lyrics, if I may, Kevin. Certainly. Flying high in the friendly sky. Flying high without ever leaving the ground. No. Rest of the folks are tired and weary. Oh, Lord. And have laid their bodies down. I go to the place where danger awaits me. And it's bound to forsake me. Hmm... I have no idea what this could be about. You? Well, if you were slightly confused by the allegory there, I know I'm hooked, my friend, to the boy who makes slaves out of men. Uh, Boy being a slang word for horse smack heroin. Yes. In America in 1971. Yeah, this is a song about heroin addiction. And, well, yeah, as you just said, it's a really candid song. It's a really brutal, almost, mm-hmm. depiction of, of knowing the dangers of what you're putting into your body. Yeah. It, and, it, like, the, we always use the word juxtaposition, but and I'm going to use it again, between the beautiful sort of arrangements, which is a kind of jazz-soul fusion, with the brutal subject matter is, again, like... A, I'm struggling to find superlatives for that because it just, it works so well. 
It does indeed. Yeah, and I've taught, I've I've picked up on the on the jazz elements of it. That you know the the irregular drum rhythms, the bass line. It does sound like a jazz composition. It does sound very Miles Davis in, influenced, and that sound gives it a real a real sense of being in a dreamscape, mm-hmm. a, a sense of floating on air. And that juxtaposition between that sound and the lyrical content is really stark. It's it's dreamy, but just sinister enough to put you on edge. It, the strings are so lush as well. That's one thing I didn't Sumptuous. Oh, yeah, they are. Uh, well, again, we just called, called out Al Green, Curtis Mayfield on this. <laughs> uh, just one last thing I've got to say about it. The, the sort of the title, well, and the refrain lyrically, takes its inspiration from a 1965 commercial for United Airlines, the tagline for which was Fly the Friendly Skies, a slogan that was also used by, again, I'm going to call out you 2 on Zuropa. <laughs> um, now, I'm going to praise you 2 because I fucking love Zuropa. It's a brilliant song. Yeah, it is, like I do, do really like Zuropa. So, yeah, anyone that hasn't heard Zuropa... Uh, the opening sort of two or three verses are basically all advertising slogans. So Fly the Friendly Skies is one of them. Voschbundoch Technique from, from Audi is one of them. I'm basically hoping to get some free airline tickets and cars. And <laughs> <laughs> not pay any tax on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, Marvin uh, used it first. So Bono stealing from Marvin Gaye. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I really like it. Three songs in, I'm having a really good time. Yeah, it's. <laughs> I mean, it seems quite funny to say um, a song about the state of the world in 1971, the shit treatment of Vietnam vets and heroin addiction, and we're having a lovely time. But <laughs> you know, they are they are all three brilliant songs, and yeah, it's there's there's not a bad moment so far. Shall we save the children, Kev? Let's save the children. This was released as a single in the UK only on the 11th of November 1971. I mean, it's better than 80, that's what I'll say. 60? No, 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 41. Oh, okay. So it still didn't make top 40? No. So just the Who sampled stuff first off. It's been sampled six times this, including by someone we've spoken about before, Janelle Monet, uh, in the song Sincerely Jane from their very first EP back in 2008, Metropolis Suite One. Mm. Uh, it has been covered twice, including in 1973 by Diana Ross in the Brown Boy medley. I could see Diana Ross, like I've not heard it, but I could see her doing a really good version of this. Yeah, I know what you mean. Again, it's a fairly obvious song. I mean, the lyrics are really on the nose, Mm -hmm. but quite bleak again. Uh, You know, who really cares? Who's willing to try to save a world that's destined to die? I mean, fair play, Marvin, bringing in the heat death of the universe into (laughs) into your song. (laughs) Not enough Um, songs um, referencing physics. (laughs) No. I mean, on a serious note, so it is very much calling out people's apathy to what's going on yeah to the poverty and the the destitution of children in america unfortunately yeah. a thing that's still still happening really well, quite so a lot of the themes on this album are as relevant if not more so mm-hmm. today than they were 50 years ago tragically now what do you think of say the children so initially when i first heard the album and for a while i didn't like it 
I found it a little bit too much. But on sort of subsequent listens, and again, listening for this clash, the balance between the spoken lyrics and the soulful, like, sang lament, it, it just works so beautifully to sort of underpin the message that's going through. The saxophone, again, is beautiful. Um, the breakdown, when that occurs, is great. And then it turns a bit funky. And then there's, like, an amazing bit of bass work going on. So there's so many different elements going on. And what starts off as something that can be quite cloying, um, again, to use that word, becomes something majestic. Hmm, interesting. So we're going to have some debate here. I do struggle with this one. So I'm going to talk lyrically first. As I said, it's very on the nose lyrically. This, to me, is a bit too preachy. And bear in mind, the next track is called God is Love, and this is the one I'm calling out for being too preachy. Should tell you something. I know before I say this that I'm being unduly harsh on the song because I can't put myself in 1971 when this was, to all intents and purposes, ostensibly a pop album and Marvin Gaye is basically calling out the record by the public saying, there's fucking shit going on here you need to be aware about. So I will add that caveat that I know what I'm about to say is somewhat incendiary, but I cannot listen to this song without getting massive Michael Jackson Heal the World vibes. I'm sorry, I can't. Yeah, I can see I can see where you where you come in at with that. But I think that's because you you are thinking heal the world, you're thinking um Earth Song, all that, all that kind of nonsense. Like I think for me, the fact that it doesn't it doesn't bother with an allegory, it doesn't bother um trying to dress it up as something something that's not. It's calling out, save the children, save the babies. Like it's I think possibly the because of the style of the album that it doesn't seem like a call to arms and that's what it is and that's that's what I take from it. You're right. I see your point. It is a call to arms and again I'll come back to what I've said a few times. It was unheard of. No one's doing this in 1971. No. So fair play. Okay. And I said I did qualify my point by saying I can't put myself in 1971. But I struggle with this lyrically. I also struggle with it musically, I have to say, until right at the end, the final movement, when that soul groove comes back in to segue it into God is Love. I just don't get why the sound is so ethereal. Okay, you could say it flows on from Flying High in the Friendly Sky in terms of that more jazz-influenced style, but it's a bit too all over the place until that final movement. I have to say, I I, I struggle with this. Okay, as I've sort of outlined, I disagree with you on that. I think it's a great piece of work, but as as I openly admitted, like it's a song that I didn't struggle with, but I, I had issues with, and it's something that that's certainly grown with me. Okay, I, I don't hate it. Far from it. I just after the three we've heard, it's a bit of a come down for me. Okay. No pun intended after the previous track. <laughs> okay, uh, shall we go on to God is Love then? Yes, let's let's do it. So, a song which is basically about not only God, but Marvin's own father, Marvin Gaye Sr. Don't go and talk about my father. God is my friend. Jesus is my friend. He made this world for us to live in and gave us everything. And all he asks of us is we give each other love. So, yeah, it's very much calling out again that lack of empathy that 
he saw in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's fair to say Marvin had something of a difficult relationship with his dad. <laughs> well, yeah. Hold on to that. Hold on to that. He had said that living with his father was like living with a king. A very peculiar, changeable, cruel, and powerful king. Yeah, we'll come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, so just just one thing. The uh, single release of what's going on, and I, uh, I think it is now included on the deluxe version of the album release, uh, had a much slower version of this track as the B-side. This version is much, much better. Yeah. I mean, it, like, so obviously it speaks to his relationship with his dad. It speaks to his his view on the lack of spirituality, lack of empathy within American society at this time. And it also speaks to his kind of reborn spirituality as well. And I know you had issues with Save the Children. I feel that it beautifully segs, uh, segues from the previous song. And it's absolutely gorgeous. So it is absolutely gorgeous. Yes, it does beautifully segue from Save the Children, but only because the final movement of Save the Children is deliberately in this style. It is gorgeous. I really, really like this. Yeah. One minute and 41 seconds, so it's short. I could be critical and say it feels like a bridge between two tracks, considering what's going to come next. But that is being hypercritical, because I think this song in itself has a lot to offer lyrically and musically. But yeah, I think you've pretty much said it all already, so I won't repeat what you've already said. Okay, I've got nothing more to add, so we probably should move on to the next song. Okay, which is Mercy, Mercy Me, open parentheses, the ecology, close parentheses. Now, if the title doesn't reveal too much about the subject matter, the lyrics don't leave very much to the imagination. Or you're wasted on the ocean and upon our seas. I mean... That's literally the same thing, Marvin, but okay. I can't believe you're so shade that Marvin gave the <laughs> Fish full of mercury. In another verse, he sings radiation underground. I mean, some igneous rocks are very naturally radio- <laughs> radioactive, Marvin. That's just the way of the world. Literally the way of the world. And in the sky. Animals and birds who live nearby are dying. So, no, let's be serious for a second. We mentioned this earlier. This is perhaps... Well, I can't think of a song released before this that is speaking about environmental issues and, and, and what is going on with the ecology. And um, for that alone, if there's nothing else to praise it about, which there is, uh, this would deserve immense praise. Yeah, it's so ahead of its time in terms of its themes. It's, I mean, as with many other things on this album, unfortunately, still very relevant well, as I said, more more so. The messages in this song, the mm-hmm. warnings in this song, have not been heeded. And without getting too much onto my soapbox, as we are wont to do from time to time, that is disastrous in every possible sense of the word. Mm-hmm. What a way this song opens. Oh, just with the ascending oh, chords. It's great. Yeah, it's really great. With a nice little bit of a use of the xylophone in there as well. I like that. And um, Marv- Marvin's voice, I mean, throughout this, he, he sounds amazing on it. And like the balance between the sumptuous sound and the hard-hitting lyrics. Um, and then, again, an absolutely fucking wondrous sax solo in it as well. Phenomenal. So I, I, I'm, I know I'm contradicting myself from Save the Children here, which I talk about being too preachy. I don't find this one too preachy. It's a slightly more easy to approach song than Save the Children because of its its form. 
a good shout, a really good shout, actually. Yeah, I'll take that. That's my excuse. Thank you. <laughs> you've dug me out of a nice hole there. I mean, the orchestration. You've you, you've talked about the sax solo. You've talked about the strings. The percussion is immense on this. So that really prominent echoey sound is apparently it's someone hitting a wooden block with a rubber mallet. Wow. With a shitload of reverb applied to it. That's all it is. But it is right there. It's mm-hmm. it's iconic. I say that word a lot on this show, and I can't believe I said iconic about a percussion sound <laughs> at the end but, of every part. But it is. But it is. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So uh, it was released as the second single on June the 10th of 71. It sold over a million copies, and it reached number four on the Billboard chart. <laughs> I'm going to do the samples and covers. God. <laughs> Uh, I'm only going to call out one sample uh, of 40, and that is uh, the song Help the Children by MC Hammer. (laughs) (laughs) At least it wasn't Prey. Uh, Well, we've done that one before. (laughs) 26 covers, including in 1990, uh, quite successfully, bizarrely, by Robert Palmer, Dreadful. Oh, God. Do you not remember that? Do you know what? Now that you mention it, I can I can remember that he had all the balls taken out of it. Yeah, it's really bad. Now the next three are a bit weird in no particular order. Boys to Men, okay. The Strokes, mm-hmm. with guest drummer Josh Hom, mm-hmm. <laughs> and last but not least, as what. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I've got nothing to add to that. Uh, so this is one of the ones I was familiar with before I I, I ever heard the album. Uh, I fucking love it. It's a great tune. Yeah. I really, really like it. I adore this song. Okay, uh, so for those with the vinyl, that is the end of side one. Not bad. Not bad at all. And we move on to side two, which is right on. Well, it starts with right on. It's not right on in its... Well, it is right on, I suppose. You know, that's that's... <laughs> A fair, a fair observation of mine. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it starts with Right On. And it's basically a call out to people who do feel compassion, who do feel empathy, and who want to help those less fortunate. Just again, some of the lyrics in this. For those of us who simply like to socialise, for those of us who tend the sick and heed the people's cries, let me say to you, Right On. So, speaking of Curtis Mayfield, as I did a couple of tracks ago, I mean... <laughs> The bass line in this is pure superfly, yeah? It certainly um, certainly bears comparison. Mm-hmm. Not just that, but also the, the, the percussion track with the... Uh, is it called a guiro? You know, the, the scratchy... Like... Yeah, the scratchy thingamajig. Yeah, and the piano part. Marvin sounds great on this. I mean, he sounds great on everything, but in this, he brings the soul and he brings the funk. Yeah, it's it's such a brilliant, funky, groovy song. And it's really different as well from anything that's been before on the album. It's got kind of yeah. more of a Latin influence rhythm and beat to it. And it has like several different movements as well. The drumming in this is fucking great. Can I also give props to the jazz flute solo? Yes, not nose flute as, <laughs> as, was, as was last week. No. <laughs> It's great, uh, and you've talked about the movements. So there's a breakdown where you just get a, a clarinet solo. I think it is. It's just oh. again the orchestration throughout this album is is incredible and 
given what we'd said about about Motown trying to retain such strict regimented control over their output just look at what was achieved when they allowed their artists the freedom to create what they wanted to we'll talk about this next week as well obviously but fucking hell this is a fella who's never had this much control before and look at what he's able to create with a group of phenomenally talented musicians yes but this is his vision and wow i cannot put it any better than than you put it there he developed a concept he developed a vision and just like ran with it with brilliant fucking musicians and knocks it out the park he does knock it out the park all right so we've only got two tracks left kev Mm-hmm. Uh, and the next one we have spoken about before. We have, indeed. So it's Holy Holy. Uh, we spoke about it when we went through Aretha Franklin's live album Amazing Grace a long time ago now. It was one of our, one of our first few clashes. It's about coming together to show love for each other and for the Lord. People, we all need to come together because we need the strength, the power and all the feeling. Holy Holy, oh Lord, get together one another. So I've said before that I prefer Aretha's version, and I'm going to stick with that. That is mainly because I think it sounds better as a gospel song. Despite that, that's not to say that I don't love this, because I do. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. I think the strings just, they tug at your, tug at your heartstrings, in fact. The rest of the backing track is really simple. I was about to, I was about to say that there is just a beautiful simplicity to this song in terms of the musical content of it, and it's not a criticism in comparison to what's gone before. But it, I think, this song, if you threw more at it, it would take away from the message of it. It's a plea for people to choose love rather than what the stuff that's been referred to on the other side of the album. You know, it it, work, it works really, really well. It does work really, really well. I have one criticism, and that's I've never been sure about the clarinet solo in this. It gives it a really odd, sexy scene in an 80s thriller vibe. I mean, look, just because you were banging to a Channel 5 late night film, doesn't mean that we all are. Shannon Tweed. <laughs> I, I say, that is one slight criticism. I really like it. I really, really like Holy Holy. Yeah, I'd, I think, as as I've said, that I think it's beautiful. Even though it's not the best version. Well, what, so what do, do you have a preference between the two that we've covered now on Album Clash? So I would probably say that if I was if if I had to pick one version out the out the two, I would probably go with the Aretha one because it's the way that's put together and the power of her voice. It it transcends. But I I love Holy Holy and I love the Marvin Gaye yeah. version. So you know it's it's which one's your favourite child essentially? I mean I can answer that question too if you want. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. Yeah, let's just move on from And on to the last track, in fact. Inner City Blues, make me want to holler. Well, it's a it's a lament to life in the in the ghettos, in the inner city. It's a moody intro. It is a moody intro, isn't it? And in, in the space of what, five minutes or so, you cover so many of the socio socio-political issues that we've already talked about. The space race, Vietnam inflation, police brutality, taxation. So, I I just want to read something from co-writer James Nix. Marvin had a good tune, but didn't have any words for it. 
We started putting things in there about how rough things were around town. We laughed about putting in lyrics about high taxes because we both owed a lot to the IRS. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we talked about how the government would send guys to the moon but not help folks out in the ghetto. But we didn't have a name or really good idea of the song. Then I was home reading the paper one morning and saw a headline that said something about the inner city of Detroit. And I said, damn, that's it. Inner city blues. So the, the opening lyric... It's such a caustic and an absolute absolute challenge. Caustic is a perfect way to describe it. Rockets, moonshots, spend it on the have-nots. <laughs> yeah, you know it speaks to like obviously there's there's the Gil Scott's Heron um, song, uh, Whitey Whitey's on the moon, and you, you know like you can understand like the anger of Black America. Mm-hmm when there's so much money being spent there and there's so many problems in the inner city. So, yes, we, I think we, sh- we should say that you and I both uh, regard the moon landings and a, a lot of what happened in the space race as, as really some of the greatest achievements in, in human history. But, yeah, some of those messages that, that are in this song, and as you said, in White is on the Moon, kind of understand where they're coming from. Yeah, you know, it, they've, they've got a point. And like yes, we do we do believe the 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 moon landings. Well, one we believe they fucking happened. You bellends. It was Kubrick, and like they are one of humanity's greatest achievements. We literally sent people to another world. But the problems that America has at this time, you can understand the the sheer anger and some of the again like so prescient in some of the lyrics. And unfortunately, because because. The more things change, the more things stay the same. You know, crime is increasing, trigger-happy trigger policing, panic is spreading, God knows where we're heading. Yeah. You know, we've talked before on the pod around the, the Black Lives Matter movement, around George mm-hmm. Floyd, all that. 71, Marvin Gaye was talking about it. Half a century ago. I know. And what's changed? Criminal. Yeah, exactly. Okay, I want to talk musically, because I adore this. Uh, the way it builds from that piano chord mm-hmm. in, in the in a minor key then the percussion comes in then marvin starts singing then the strings and a fucking bass line mm. that just will not let go it's funky it's soulful wow it's also menacing it's a menacing bass line because mm. it talks to the the undercurrent of what's happening and but that mm. that's how it works in in this song and it's yep. It is brilliant, and yeah, it's a it's a it's a phenomenal song. And the way it breaks back at the end, it links it back to the opening song, so it it becomes yeah. a whole suite. If song it, circle, yeah. as it's set out to be, as you said, the last minute is a reprise of of the title track. It's a perfectly judged ending to the album. Yeah, a a work of genius mm-hmm. is all I can say. So just to undercut um, the really good things that we've said thus far. So when um, like you get to the line that he throws in about can't pay my taxes, <laughs> my notes say, has uh, Ken Dodd and Lester Pickett been um, involved in this? <laughs> One for the kids there. See, I was thinking of um, can't pay, we'll take it away. <laughs> 
Yeah, if, if anyone doesn't know what Can't Pay will take it away, it's one of the several British daytime TV grotesque shows which appear to want to demonise people who are in fiduciary difficulty. Poverty porn. Quite so. And if you don't know who Lester Piggott is... <laughs> he was a he, he was a jockey. He didn't pay his taxes. And Ken Dodd. We've had, there's been a lot of tax talk on this on this episode. <laughs> I'm going to undercut that even further by saying uh, a brilliant use of the triangle on this track. I mean, that doesn't undercut it at all. Like the, the triangle is is great in this. It is. It is indeed. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about Inner City Blues. I fucking love it. Yeah, it is an absolute genius piece of work, and what a way to end the album. All right, so before I do Legacy, shall we listen to some reviews? I think we should. Okay, so writing at the time, Vince Aletti in Rolling Stone said, At first, the sameness in sound persisting from one song to the next is boring, but gradually the concept of the album takes shape and its wholeness becomes very affecting. One or two cuts don't hold together quite as well, but the album as a whole takes precedence, absorbing its own flaws. There are very few performers who could carry a project like this off. I've always admired Marvin Gaye, but I didn't expect that he'd be one of them. I guess I seriously underestimated him. It won't happen again. Yeah, fair play. I I think that's pretty much spot on. I would slightly disagree with the, there's a couple of tracks that may be undercut it, but everything else I think is bang on. Okay, uh, moving on, in a 2011 retrospective for Pitchfork, Ryan Dombal wrote, What's going on isn't a fiery album filled with timely sloganeering. Part of its long-lasting appeal involves an element of true-to-life resignation. But the album doesn't wallow either. It hums and glides on the effortless, multi-track Marvins that swoop through the stereo spectrum like ghosts. His 70s brilliance is unfathomable without his 60s pop triumphs. And what's going on is the turning point, the moment when he was able to bypass his selfishness and self-destructiveness in the name of God, peace and love. It's a nice dream, one that he knew was too good to last. Uh, again, I think that's pretty much nailed it. It's a Yeah, that's a really good review. Now, <sighs> yep, shall we listen to Nobby McGee? Robert Criscal. He's not gonna he's gonna just be wanky, so let's just get it out of the way. Okay. Brace yourselves, because this is unedited. <laughs> this may be a groundbreaking personal statement, but like any Barry Gordy quickie, it's baited skimpily. Only three great tunes, What's Going On, Inner City Blues, and Mercy Mercy Me, are so original and they reveal ordinary Motown political as the benign market manipulation that it is. And Gay keeps getting more subtle vocally and rhythmically. But the rest is pretty murky, even when the lyrical ideas are good. I like the words on What's Happening, Brother, and Flying High in the Friendly Sky quite a bit. And the religious songs that bear Gay's real message are suitably shapeless. Worst of all, because they're used a lot, are David van der Pitt's strings, the lowest kind of movie background deck. (sighs) Fuck off. Is it possible for anyone in the history of human existence to have been any more wrong about anything at all? <laughs> Please see his other works. Remarkable. I mean, yeah, the he he only found three three songs of of worth on there. <sighs> more from him next week. 
<laughs> yeah, more from the insufferable prick. Uh, I don't have any more reviews. I, f- I figured that those three were... Uh, yeah, I think that covers it. <laughs> okay, so shall I talk about the legacy? Yeah. I mean, obviously, we've spoken about it being a massive commercial success, a massive critical success. Uh, in terms of what it did for Marvin's career, it won him a new $1 million recording deal with Tamla. That made him the uh, highest-earning R&B artist in the world at the time. In terms of what he went on to do, his next album was the soundtrack to the 1972 black exploitation movie Trouble Man. It wasn't as successful, but it, it still reached number twelve in the US. Trouble Man's a fucking tune as well. It is a tune. It's a it's a good it's a good soundtrack album. It's a really good soundtrack album. Uh, however, that that wasn't until after he'd released the single "You're the Man." Uh, earlier in 1972, which was very much a political call to arms, urging politicians to rid the world of its ills. The reason I wanted to mention that is that Barry Gordy refused to promote the single for fear that its politics would alienate conservative audiences. So Marvin shelved the album that was going to accompany the single and decided, oh, fuck you, then I'm going to do Trouble Man instead. In 1973, he released Let's Get It On, which as a single was his second number one single in the US. The album was huge commercially, his most successful by far. And it was, again, an about face from what Mm -hmm. he'd gone into with what's going on and what he'd intended to be doing with You're the Man. You know, let's get it on. It's a great album. Don't get me wrong. I think it's phenomenal. But it's very much Marvin Gaye being the Lothario crooner that he is often remembered for being if that and I, I don't I say I don't mean that critically I just mean it's really interesting that he decided to re- completely go away from what he'd been doing on what's going on yeah it's it's a it's a funny thing that he'd made such a statement he'd made such a break with his past and obviously to then partially return to it seems odd but you know it it, it did very well so what the fuck do we know Fair point. Okay, so uh, alongside his continued musical success, his his personal problems certainly mounted, as did his professional grievances with Motown. In 1977, he uh, actually divorced Anna Gordy. As we'd said earlier, his marriage to her had been in trouble for quite a number of years leading up to that point. In 1981... He got into a dispute with Motown over his album Love Man after an early master was lost, stroke stolen from a member of his touring band. It ended up in the hands of Motown, who released it. Marvin accused Motown of editing, remixing and releasing the album without his consent, and he refused to work for them again. Following that, he signed with CBS Records in 1982. He released the album Midnight Love. The most famous song from that is Sexual Healing. That reached number three on the Billboard chart and won him his first two Grammy Awards. So we talked about Mm -hmm. when we did Top Trumps, our surprise that this hadn't won any awards. Not only did this not win any Grammys, Let's Get It On didn't win any fucking Grammys either. Disgraceful. It is disgraceful. Now, I like Midnight Love. It's very 80s soul. Do you know what I mean? It's very, um, just let your soul glow. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good album. Sexual Healing's a good song. Yeah, you know, it's a, it, it's a classic of that 80s soul genre. Yes. 
But for that to be the album which won him his first Grammy Awards is fucking nuts. Well, as we will go on to talk about next week, yes. you know what Stevie Wonder's only UK number one is, so, you know. <laughs> Indeed. And I'm still fuming. Yeah, okay. To be continued. And to bring things to somewhat of a sombre conclusion in terms of Marvin, Midnight Love would prove to be his last release. Because very tragically, on the 1st of April 1984, which was one day before his 45th birthday. So at that time, he was living with back with his parents. He intervened in a physical altercation between his mum and dad. And then his father shot him twice. Once in the shoulder and once in the chest. The shot to the chest killed him, not instantly, but he was pronounced dead before he arrived at hospital. Uh, Marvin Gaye Sr. was charged with first-degree murder. That was later reduced to voluntary manslaughter following the discovery of a brain tumour. Tragic. Yeah, there's not there's nothing more to say, really. The, a, a tragic loss to the world at too early an age. Absolutely. In terms of the album's real legacy, it's massive. As we've said, it's widely regarded as one of, if not the greatest album of all time. It paved the way for so much that followed for soul music, for pop music, for black artists and black musicians to have far greater control of their their art and to earn the money that they were deservingly owed from doing so, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. It was, as I said, probably the first time you'd heard social commentary or such clear and biting social commentary at least on pop songs. I mean, I think there is a long tradition of songs speaking to what's to what's occurring, to political mm-hmm. songs, uh, protest songs, you know, and particularly sort of throughout the 60s. But I don't think until this point there's a collection of songs that speak no. to the ills of the world, and so brutally as well. That that's very well. So so brutally, but also so beautifully. Yeah. In terms of the way they're composed, and as we've said, the saddest part of this album's legacy is that literally every message this has to convey is still relevant today, and as we've said, some of them even more so than they were fifty years ago. Mm-hmm. I would like to leave the last word on the album to. Marvin Gaye himself, if I may. Well, he's the right person to have the last word on it. In a 1971 interview with Dice magazine, he said, I mustn't get into ego tripping because I didn't have much to do with it. But I'm only human. And when you get a lot of pats on the back for something, it makes you go to trips. I was only the instrument in the album. The inspiration came from God himself. It's one that should be listened to. The material is social commentary, but there's nothing extreme on it. I did it not only to help humanity, but to help me as well. And I think it has. It's given me a certain amount of peace. There you go. Yeah, I've got, that stunned me into silence. Okay. Could you stun yourself out of silence and please tell me what are your best and worst songs on What's Going On, please? <sighs> Christ, that's a, that's a hard one. Do you know what? Worst song is... I will probably fall on Save the Children, but I... I like it more than you do. And so it's only because I've got to pick one. Okay. And your best? Best song. I think I'm going to come down in Inner City Blues, Make Me Want to Holler. So, but like, it depends when I listen to this album. Sometimes it's the opening track. Sometimes it's 
mercy mercy me the ecology sometimes it's right on you know it's a it depends but at this moment like i think inner city blues just has it has everything okay no debate unfortunately again today the worst song is save the children i don't like it i don't hate it by any stretch but i do struggle with it so yeah sorry best song yeah inner city blues like you said the title track is phenomenal I love the incessant groove that Right On has, but Inner City Blues has got... It's the complete package. Soulful, funky, it sounds epic, it builds brilliantly, it's poignant without being sentimental, it's got a great message without being too preachy, it's biting without being too angry. It's a great song, and that's why it's the best. Yeah, right on. All right, then. That's about it for this week. Other than... Twitter stuff. Okay, so um, if you um, are slightly disturbed by the prospect of an ex-England footballer biting the toes of his daughter, <laughs> or sucking the toes of his daughter, depending on what you think, um, you may check out the video um, on Twitter. Whilst there, um, you can check out our Twitter, our Clash album. Also, apparently you can check it out on Instagram. Whilst there, you can check out our carefully curated um, content at Clash Album, or you can send us an old school email at albumclash at gmail.com. Very good. I admire your restraint. So uh, any fans of football and the Premier League, we are recording this on the 25th of October, 2021. We are both fans of Liverpool Football Club. You know what happened yesterday, so well done for your restraint, Kevin. Yeah, but I still couldn't help reference uh, Paul Scholes no. sucking his daughter's toes. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> Fucking weird, that. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, and with that, I think I'll call it a day. Yeah. As ever, thank you very much for listening. Go and check out our socials, as Kev has just said. Send us an email for you know, just just for a chat. You know, what's going on in your life? You know, we talk about you. We talk about what's going on in our lives a lot of time. What's happening with you guys? You know, we're here for you if you need to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just get in touch. As I say, it'd be great if if, um, you might think there's a clash that is screaming out to be done. Uh, And if so, we want to hear about it. So please do let us know. Other than that, like the show, leave a rating, leave a review, all that stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Just remind people, Kev, of what they need to listen to to research next week's show. For next week's show, you need to listen to Inner Visions by Stevie Wonder. Until then, I have been, as always, Tim. And I continue and remain to be Kev. Yeah, all right. Thanks very much for listening, guys. We'll see you next week. Ta-da. Bye. Ta-da.